Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental health nor emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he has gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as they individually and personally choose while accepting full responsibility for their own individual thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you are acknowledging that you and only you are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom, the podcast. I'm the creator and host, Brian Barnett. I encourage you to visit thelastsymptom.com for additional resources. And if you're so inclined to donate while you're there to support my overall body of work, which includes this podcast, I thank you very much. Last week, we skipped an an episode because I was out in the Pennsylvania wilderness on a week-long backpacking trip. And as you've probably figured out by now, I survived. Bigfoot didn't drag me off and make me his girlfriend or anything like that. I didn't starve to death. I didn't get lost in the mountains. It was a good time, despite the fact that for the whole week, there was only one day of blue skies and sunshine, and I'm not kidding about that. It rained the whole live-long day, every day. Even so, you're listening right now to a master fire maker out in the woods, and I'm not making this up. If I really want a fire, it don't matter how wet things are. I will get an all-night fire going, if I feel like putting the work into it, that is. So for every night, except for the last night, we had good fires and a dry spot under a tarp to sit and socialize. That's my favorite part of being out there, you know, at night, around a fresh new camp, totally isolated, with good company, good conversation, my dog, and a bottle of Kentucky bourbon to loosen the tongue and take away the day's aches and pains. Now, just real quick here, what are my favorite bourbons? My favorite top-shelf bourbon is Knob Crick. Knob Crick. And some of y'all might pronounce that Knob Creek. I know when I order that in Philly or in Boston, they always correct me. I sit down at the bar and I say, hey, uh, I'll take a glass of Knob Crick. And they say, you mean Knob Creek? And I think... No, I mean Knob Crick, but, you know, whatever pleases you so that I get my drink. (laughs) You call it what you like. So there you go. Unnecessary conversation about whiskey to get us started today. While reviewing the topics we've covered up to this point, it occurred to me that we have never really talked about what recovery is. You know, it's a term we throw around all the time. And yet we've never really stopped to discuss what it is. It's important to define it somewhat because up until now, every one of us may have been thinking a different thing when we talk about it. Also, 
while we're on this subject. Don't you think it also makes sense to discuss what emotional unhealth is, as well as what good emotional health involves or is? I realize that unhealth is not a real word. Yes, I have always been conscious of this. But frankly, it precisely communicates the message that I want to communicate. And that's why I've continued to use it. In fact, this is how words come to exist. Necessity is the mother of invention. And to be perfectly honest, as long as the meaning of my words and expressions is clear to you, any complaints by others who themselves gladly walk around adopting terms like woke, which I just find absolutely idiotic, to be honest with you, they're just not complaints I'm going to lose any sleep over by those people. <laughs> you can understand why. So recovery, what is it? Recovery is anything you are actively doing in a process of moving from emotional unhealth to emotional health. Notice that it's a process. It's not the finish line. It's not the final achievement. But rather, it is the active, forward process. Recovered is the end goal. That's when you finally emerged on the other side. And when I use the term recovered, what I mean is, you have corrected something that should have never been there. And now you are enjoying life exactly how you would have enjoyed it, had that glitch never been there in the first place. You are enjoying true emotional health. That is recovered. That is what I claim for myself. That I am a recovered person. I'm no longer in recovery. I already went through that process, and now I am recovered. Now, we often hear the term recovery being used with addictions, right? Such as alcoholism or drug addiction. Addictions such as these involve two different types of addiction or dependence. So, depending on the type of dependence, the word recovery may mean different things. What do I mean by this? Well, most addictions or substance dependence start off as emotional in nature. We can say that people start off with an emotional dependence on a substance. There's nothing physically compelling them. Emotionally, they have a dependence on that substance. The substance drowns out or dulls their negative emotions so that they can function without the constant nagging pain of those subconscious thoughts and feelings. This is why one kid in high school smokes a pack of cigarettes and then never touches them again. And yet another kid does the same thing and gets forever hooked. Have you ever thought about that? Why that happens? The second kid, he's still smoking 70 years later. The first kid, being emotionally healthy, experienced no emotional dependence. The second kid did experience 
emotional dependence. You see, because he was emotionally unhealthy to start with, and unbeknownst to him, was already craving some sort of comfort or distraction for the inner pain that naturally accompanies emotional unhealth. I'll give you another example, one that I know of firsthand from being an interpreter on medical teams in hospitals for the past 17 years and working shoulder to shoulder with uh, anesthesiologists. Cocaine. Did you know that cocaine is an anesthesia used for some surgeries? Well, it is. I've seen it administered firsthand. Of course, they don't call it cocaine, though some anesthesiologists will tell you that this is what it is. But why do thousands of patients walk out of hospitals not addicted to cocaine? It's a one-time use, and often the patients are unconscious. So there's not much chance of emotional dependence occurring on something that you're given while you're unconscious. Could a person ever genuinely recover from a state of emotional dependence on a substance in a true sense? For example, could a person who merely has an emotional an emotional dependence on alcohol upon fixing the emotional causes at the root of their emotional unhealth go on to drink in moderation later in life? Yes. Because once you've fixed the emotional causes at the root of the problem, the compulsion and dependence, the causes behind it all, simply no longer exist. The emotional causes have been identified and fixed. As long as, as long as, and this is important, the second type of dependence, which we've not yet discussed, has not yet taken hold of that person. If you've had problems with alcohol or drugs in the past and have fortunately broken free of that problem and you're enjoying sobriety, I am not giving you permission to go back to them. Your sobriety is your responsibility, an incredibly important responsibility that I do not accept. <laughs> All right? I don't accept your responsibilities. So your sobriety, it's only your responsibility to maintain that or not. Consider this. If you were genuinely emotionally healthy already, would you be listening to this program? So we can safely assume that the conditions I just described does not apply to you. But let's talk about the second type of dependence, which is the more grave of the two. The second type of dependence is physical dependence. This is when you've been using or abusing a substance consistently over a period of time. Your emotional dependence has caused this. But now, time has passed. And now you've become physically, physically dependent on that substance. Which means it's no longer just an emotional dependence. But physically, your body itself now needs it. 
just a function as it has become accustomed to. So let's go back to the two kids in high school. The one kid, the emotionally healthy kid, smoked cigarettes for a week. Then he said, you know what? This isn't for me. And he threw them in the trash, and he never touched them again. No problem. The second kid, the one growing up in an emotionally unhealthy family environment, what does he do? He immediately latches onto cigarettes as an emotional crutch. And 40 years later, he's still smoking. He has now long had a physical dependence on cigarettes. His body physically depends on him just to be able to think straight and feel normal. But let's imagine that kid number two realizes, he recognizes, that he is emotionally unhealthy. At some point in his life, as he's going along smoking cigarettes like crazy, he realizes, um, I've got some emotional problems. I'm uh, operating on some emotional unhealth. I come from an emotionally unhealthy family. And he goes on to profoundly educate himself about his psychology. He identifies the distorted thinking or erroneous subconscious perspectives that have always formed his emotional foundation. And let's say that he actually does the hard work of straightening out all these distorted perspectives. And now he is authentically an emotionally healthy individual. He escaped emotional unhealth, and now he's enjoying authentic emotional health. What do you think? Will his dependence on the cigarettes now magically go away? No, because remember, this guy's dependence on cigarettes long ago evolved from something he merely depended on emotionally to something his physical body began to depend on itself. Now, even though the emotional issues which caused the emotional dependence in the first place have been totally repaired, his body, physically, is still dependent on those cigarettes. Somebody very close to me who is an alcoholic, and this is a true story, decided a, a few years ago to give up alcohol cold turkey. For anybody who's dealing with an emotional dependence on booze, this might have been a great idea. But it was not a great idea for this person who I'm telling the story about. Because this person had been drinking a whole bottle of vodka every night, every night, for six or seven years. And in the two previous years to this story, he had been drinking two, two full bottles of vodka every night. So this person, who's a surveyor, gave up alcohol, cold turkey, on his own, with no assistance from the medical community at all. A day or two later, he was walking through a field in the middle of the woods, surveying. So in his official capacity as a surveyor, he was walking through a field in the middle of the woods, and he tells me that suddenly he saw a pinprick 
of light fluttering toward him. Like a bug. Like a bug would fly. That's what he saw, but this was a pinprick of light. And this light flew right up in front of his face and hovered there. And guess what it was? Well, you're not going to believe this. It was Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell. The cartoon character, Tinkerbell. From Disney's Peter Pan. Yes, this is a little funny. It's funny, but it's also very scary. So he sees Tinkerbell fly through the field, fly up in front of his face and hover there. Tinkerbell, the cartoon character from Walt Disney. And after this, he woke up in a hospital bed. Fortunately, he wasn't alone in that field in the woods. He had a workmate with him. And the workmate saw him pitch forward, face first, into the mud and begin going into convulsions. Needless to say, the doctors warned him very sternly that he could have died trying to quit alcohol like that cold turkey. Why? Because of his physical physical dependence. Anybody with a physical dependence for their own safety must have medical help to wean themselves off that substance. It's not a good idea to do it cold turkey, folks. So don't do that, please. Have the humility to go and do it right. And, you know, wanting to quit alcohol is a very lofty thing. It's a very positive thing. But have the humility to do it right. We want you to be safe. Everybody wants you to be safe, not just me. <laughs> Seven billion people in the world who would hear a story like that would would want you to feel want you to be safe. Isn't that something? Seven billion strangers? Alright, maybe six billion of them would. But you know the other billion don't don't count. So back to the discussion about being genuinely recovered. Can it be said that a person who has developed a physical dependence on something, can they ever be truly recovered in the true sense? No, they can't. There will never be a time when this person I just told the story about, who is my brother, incidentally, there will never be a time when my little brother will be able to drink alcohol again without great great risk to his life. This is no matter how emotionally healthy he might become in the future. The physical dependence takes it to a whole other level, a level that is frankly now out of his hands. He must live modestly with the reality of his new limitations. What is modesty? You know, it's Easy to confuse terms like modesty and humility, and, you know, these are not words that are popular in today's world. Uh, but uh, it's important to understand the subtle differences between them. Modesty is a beautiful word. It means recognizing, realistically, your limits, and then working within them. What a beautiful word, modesty. So, he must be modest. Live within the reality of his new limitations. 
This is why many alcoholics who no longer drink correctly describe themselves as, I am a recovering alcoholic. Even when they haven't touched alcohol in 50 years, they say, I'm a recovering alcoholic. They properly do not use the term recovered. For you see, the process is ongoing for them and always will be. And I admire very much those people. Now, how about for you and me in terms of borderline personality disorder or let's say poor emotional health in general? Will there ever be a time when you can appropriately say, I am recovered, recovered from borderline personality disorder? In other words, I'm not working on recovery. I already did all that work, and now I am recovered. I'm totally rid of that disorder, and I'm enjoying emotional health. Well, the answer to that question is yes, absolutely yes. As long as you work to identify the erroneous foundation perceptions that you live with and you accurately educate yourself on all of the various misconceptions which until now have misinformed your approach to life, if you identify these things clearly and then you do the work to untangle them and put down an accurate healthy foundation in their place, then yes, you will one day be able to say, I am recovered from borderline personality disorder, or I am recovered from codependency, or I am recovered from emotional unhealth authentically. This is exciting news, isn't it? Because until now, most sources of information on this subject have told you the opposite. Boggles my mind. That is unacceptable. They've led you to believe that the best you can hope from recovery is false recovery. Like the type the alcoholic must content himself with who has long had a physical dependence on booze that this is what you have to content yourself with. I hope the explanations I've given today about the differences between physical and emotional dependence help you see why this is not true. Because you're not dealing with any physical dependence that's beyond your ability to fix. You're dealing with an emotional issue that accurate information and insight can completely repair. It's not even really that difficult. I mean, seven years, I, you know, I talk about how it took me seven years to recover. That seems like a long time. It's not. I'm, I'm 44 now. Well, uh, hey, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I'm 43. I'm about to turn 44. I got a lot of life ahead of me. <laughs> Things are looking really good. I'm very happy. Very happy I put in the work that I did. And seven years seemed like a very small price to pay. And as we've talked about in the past, there's no reason why it needs to take you this long. The whole reason I'm doing this work is to save you as much time as I can. It might be two years for you. It might be three years. You know, my, my circumstances were to the extreme. They were as dramatic and as difficult to the extreme that anybody could possibly 
have to spend their recovery years enduring, which is why I'm such a good spokesperson on this subject. Life wasn't all uh, pillows and candy for me during the years that I was recovering. You know, it was, they were, those were very difficult years. And if I can do it, you can do it too. If this is your first time listening to me and you naturally have questions about things like, well, he's saying all this, but uh, what about borderline personality disorder being genetic? Or, but I've read that borderline personality disorder is caused by things out of one's control. Or, he's out of his mind. Borderline personality disorder can be cured. I've read this a million times. I just talked to a lady... uh, few days ago who uh she wanted to go into about how people with borderline personality disorder their their amygdalas are bigger well they might be they might be but nobody has studied my amygdala when i'm enjoying perfect emotional health to see if my amygdala hasn't changed furthermore she's working under the assumption that those people have the ability to correctly diagnose somebody with borderline personality disorder, and then run their tests. And as we've talked about in the past, we know that that's not true. They they are not able to accurately diagnose somebody with borderline personality disorder. I mean, I went I went years, years. Nobody ever diagnosed me correctly. And I know that thousands of you, the story is the same. So it's a absurd amount of trust that people have in these people who write these studies. Their records don't warrant that amount of trust in what their conclusions are. If these are the types of thoughts going through your head, it's understandable. And I just simply encourage you to listen to the other episodes of this podcast where I address those topics in great detail. I'm slowly working to leave no stone unturned. But naturally, I can't comprehensively address every single topic that's involved in every single episode. I hope you understand that. And in the meantime, while you are listening and building up trust in me as a source of information, please bear in mind that I myself had borderline personality disorder, and now I don't. So, two favorite expressions of mine are appropriate here. A man who says it can't be done should not interrupt a man doing it. And, A man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument or a theory. You get to decide which voices on this subject make the most sense and are the most trustworthy. You, not a book publisher, not Good Morning America, not a university, not popular opinion, not your online chat buddies. You. After all, you are the one living with the disorder and trying to get better. And if all these other people out there convince you that genuinely being cured of BPD is not possible, when it is possible, it's not only possible, but not really that difficult, who is going to pay the price for that? Them or you. So don't let other voices on this subject ruin your chances for you. You owe it to yourself 
to at least give my message a full hearing. And that means not stopping at one podcast episode or at just one article. The first time you come to something that contradicts everything else you've ever heard. If you truly take the time to process the whole of my message, you'll begin to see how everything harmonizes, how it comprehensively explains borderline personality disorder and how it can be authentically cured relatively, relatively easily. Okay, so now we've discussed recovery, recovered, and the relevance of understanding the two different types of dependence that these terms are generally used in relation to. Now let's discuss emotional health. What is emotional health? After all, this is what you're working towards, right? Or at least it's what you are for the time being, hoping for somebody you care about. In the simplest terms of all time, that you're probably ever going to hear from any source anywhere. Emotional health is this. Having an accurate perspective about the inherent nature of feelings, life, you yourself, and by extension, all human beings. What is emotional unhealth? This term I've coined that simply means poor emotional health. What is poor emotional health? Emotional unhealth, in the simplest terms of all time, is the natural disorder or conflict that results from living with an inaccurate perspective of these fundamental things. What happens when you buy a complex piece of furniture that arrives to you in a box with many different small parts that you have to put together and you keep misunderstanding the assembly instructions that came with it? How does the futon or the exercise machine or the TV stand turn out? A month or so ago, I bought a new futon, and this very scenario happened to me. The instructions were so vague that I incorrectly assembled the hinge mechanism, which allows the futon to fold from a bed into a couch and vice versa. I read and I reread those instructions, and I went ahead and I assembled that, that hinge mechanism, and I attached it to the frame. It looked, it looked a little cockeyed to me. But looking at the instructions, I was certain that I was following them to a T. So I kept on assembling. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary, but what do you reckon happened down the, down the pike? Eventually, everything was chaos. Because I misunderstood that one little part of the assembly. The closer I got to the end of having the whole darn thing built, the disorder kept getting greater and greater. There was only one solution. Take everything apart, back to the point of divergence, that is, back to the stage where things got out of place, fix it, and then rebuild from there. 
Folks, that's emotional unhealth and emotional health right there. It's the same thing I just described with the futon. Now, does that sound impossible or mysterious to you? Does that sound impossible or mysterious to you? If where you're getting your information makes it any more complicated than that, you want to stop getting your information from them. I realize you might be thinking emotional unhealth has to be some sort of innate inability to regulate emotions. Because my emotions just fly all over the place. My husband's emotions just fly all over the place. Yes. Yes. Your feelings do do that. Yes. His feelings do do that. But they don't do it spontaneously for no reason. It's not an innate inability. It only seems that way to you. The reason your feelings do that is precisely the reason I just described here. Inaccurate perception of the fundamental nature of life, of self, of feelings. Your feelings behaving that way is the naturally resultant chaos or disorder of those distorted fundamental perceptions or beliefs. You see what's happened is you've built a cockeyed crooked futon inside yourself. One you'll never be able to sit down comfortably in. It's not harmonizing with the reality around you. The feelings don't operate on their own. They come from our perspectives. They come from what we're thinking. Our thoughts. That's where your feelings originate. So you can see how if you have a distorted perspective on something, your perception is off, even subtly, that down the pike, that creates chaos, disharmony. People who are emotionally healthy enjoy lives that flow harmoniously with the current of life. Why? Because their perceptions harmonize and complement life, the reality we're all living in. It's that simple. Emotionally unhealthy people misunderstand life. It's that simple. Their misunderstanding creates chaos and disorder. People who are emotionally unhealthy suffer lives that are constantly and forever swimming against the current because the subtle misunderstandings they have of the nature of the fundamental things I mentioned earlier conflict with life. These subtle misunderstandings are constantly clashing with the nature of how we, as human beings, are meant to perceive life and operate. So, emotional health does not mean becoming a superman or a superwoman. It simply means that your perspectives and approach to life are accurate. And when your perspectives about these fundamental things are accurate... That means they harmonize with life itself. Genuine emotional health is genuine contentment, minimal frustrations, harmonious relationships, healthy parenting. These are natural results of emotional health. People who are genuinely emotionally healthy don't have to put on an act of contentment. They don't have to pretend they are not frustrated. 
They don't have to pretend that their relationships are harmonious. They don't have to pretend that they parent their children healthfully. They don't have to pretend because all of these things are natural extensions of being genuinely emotionally healthy. If you're genuinely emotionally healthy, these are the things you naturally do as a result. There it is. We're now all on the same page about what emotional health is, what emotional unhealth is, and what recovery and recovered is. Now we all know exactly what it is we're working toward here and what we have to look forward to. To close this week, I figured it was past due for me to share a poem since it's been a while since I've been able to do that. Today's poem is by Ray Bradbury, my favorite author, and it is an excerpt from my number one favorite book of all time. That's not poetry, you might shout. Well, you're wrong. Ray Bradbury's writing, all of it, is poetry. Just not in the traditional sense that you're programmed to think. I've picked this particular excerpt because I currently, downstairs, have a big vat of dandelion wine fermenting. My daughter and I went out and picked a bunch of dandelions about three weeks ago. And uh, that was a momentous day because that was her first day she got stung by a bee. A wasp landed on her tender little fingers and stung her. And I tell you what, I wanted to uh, strap that bee into a chair and torture it for six hours before I killed it. That's how angry I was because I hate to see her in pain. But we got through it. I explained to her that uh, that bee was only scared. And uh, I lauded her for her bravery and her ability to endure that pain and to become a stronger person because of it. And I told her, you know, this is going to be such a great story. You just think about it. You're going to be out on the playground. You're going to be telling all those kids out there, you don't know what life is like. But I can tell you, I was stung. I was stung by a wasp. And all those kids would <gasps> What? No way. And they'd all sit down in a circle and she'd be there in the middle of them. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, re I remember it like it was yesterday instead of last week. That bee landed on my finger. The stinger was 12 inches long, about 6 inches in width, and it went right in my finger and out the other side. And I survived it. I, Yes, I did cry a little bit. I did, because emotions are never good or bad, right or wrong. But I survived that sting, and here I stand before you, a stronger, more wise person about the workings of the universe and the world. So we got through it. And uh, But back to the story, we, we were picking dandelions that day, and in another couple of months, we will have about 10 bottles of dandelion wine to enjoy later this winter. So in honor of dandelion wine, the drink, and in honor of Dandelion Wine, the book, in honor of Ray Bradbury, my favorite author, and in honor of Bradbury, my dog. And finally, and in honor of the summer of 2019, which is right around the corner, my friends, I share with you now an excerpt 
from Dandelion Wine, my favorite book of all time, by the master of words and poetic thought, Ray Bradbury. Grandfather stood on the wide front porch like a captain, surveying the vast, unmotioned calms of a season dead ahead. He questioned the wind in the untouchable sky and the lawn on which stood Douglas and Tom to question only him. Grandpa, are they ready now? Grandfather pinched his chin. Five hundred, a thousand, two thousand easy, yes, yes, a good supply. Pick em easy, pick em all. A dime for every sack delivered to the press. Hey, the boys bent, smiling. They picked the golden flowers, the flowers that flooded the world, dripped off lawns onto brick streets, tapped softly at crystal cellar windows and agitated themselves so that on all sides lay the dazzle and the glitter of molten sun. Every year, said Grandfather, they run amok. I let them. Pride of lions in the yard. Stare and they burn a hole in your retina. A common flower. A weed that no one sees, yes. But for us, a noble thing, the dandelion. So, plucked carefully in sacks, the dandelions were carried below. The cellar, dark, glowed with their arrival. The wine press stood open, cold. A rush of flowers warmed it. The press replaced... Its screw rotated, twirled by Grandfather, squeezed gently on the crop. There, so. The golden tide, the essence of this fine fair month ran, then gushed from the spout below to be crocked, skimmed of ferment, and bottled in clean ketchup shakers, then raked in sparkling rows of cellar gloom, Dandelion wine. The words were summer on the tongue. The wine was summer, caught and stoppered. And now that Douglas knew, he really knew he was alive, and moved turning through the world to touch and see it all, it was only right and proper that some of his new knowledge, some of this special vintage day, would be sealed away for opening on a January day, with snow falling fast and the sun unseen for weeks or months, and perhaps some of the miracle by then forgotten and in need of renewal. Since this was going to be a summer of unguessed wonders, he wanted it all salvaged and labeled, so that any time he wished, he might tiptoe down in this dank twilight and reach up his fingertips. And there, row upon row, with the soft gleam of flowers opened at morning, with the light of this June sun glowing through a faint skin of dust, would stand the dandelion wine. Peer through it at the wintry day. The snow melted to grass, the trees were re-inhabited with bird, leaf, and blossoms like a continent of butterflies breathing on the wind. And peering through, collar 
Sky from iron to blue. Hold summer in your hand. Pour summer in a glass. A tiny glass, of course. The smallest tingling sip for children. Change the seasons in your veins by raising glass to lip and tilting summer in. Ready now, the rain barrel. Nothing else in the world would do but the pure waters which had been summoned from the lakes far away and the sweet fields of grassy dew on early morning lifted to the open sky, carried in laundered clusters 900 miles brushed with wind, electrified with high voltage and condensed upon cool air, this water, fallen, raining, gathered yet more of the heavens in its crystals taking something of the east wind and the west wind and the north wind and the south. The water made rain, and the rain, with this hour of rituals, would be well on its way to wine. Douglas ran with the dipper. He plunged it deep in the rain barrel. Here we go. The water was silk in the cup, clear, faintly blue silk, it softened the lip and the throat and the heart if drunk. This water must be carried in dipper and bucket to the cellar, there to be leavened in freshets and mountain streams upon the dandelion harvest. Even Grandma, when snow was whirling fast, dizzy in the world, blinding windows, stealing breath from grasping mouths, even Grandma. One day in February, would vanish to the cellar. Above, in the vast house, there would be coffins, sneezings, wheezings, and groans, childish fevers, throats raw as butcher's meat, noses like bottled cherries, the stealthy microbe everywhere. Then, rising from the cellar like a June goddess, Grandma would come, something hidden but obvious under her knitted shawl. This, carried to every miserable room upstairs and down, would be dispensed with aroma and clarity and the neat glasses to be swigged neatly. The medicines of another time, the balm of sun and idle August afternoons, the faintly heard sounds of ice wagons passing on brick avenues, the rush of silver sky rockets, and the fountaining of lawnmowers moving through ant countries, all these, all of these, in a glass. Yes, even Grandma, drawn to the cellar of winter for a June adventure, might stand alone and quietly in secret conclave with her own soul and spirit, as did grandfather and father and Uncle Bert, or some of the boarders, communing with the last touch of a calendar long departed, with the picnics and the warm rains and the smell of the fields of wheat and new popcorn and bending hay. Even Grandma, repeating and repeating the fine and golden words 
even as they were said now in this moment when the flowers were dropped into the press, as they would be repeated every winter for all the white winters in time. Saying them over and over on the lips, like a smile, like a sudden patch of sunlight in the dark, dandelion wine, dandelion wine, dandelion wine. Excerpt from Dandelion Wine by Ray Bradbury. This material may be protected by copyright. Folks, that's all I have for today. I invite you to visit thelastsymptom.com to take advantage of my resources there, and if you're so inclined to donate while you're there for my overall body of work and efforts, which includes this podcast, I thank you very much. This is Brian Barnett signing off, as always. Thanks for listening.